Welcome to Mill Creek Church in Belleville, Texas, where our worship service is in progress. Today, Pastor Monty Bird continues with his sermon series on the Book of Romans. And now, Pastor Bird. Join me in prayer, please. Father, as we approach your word this morning, I just pray that you continue to speak to us through the letter to the Romans. I pray, Lord, that you would mold us and shape us in your sanctifying power and that we would be servants in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the second part of our study of Romans 16, verses 17 through 18. And if you recall from last week's sermon, I pointed out that Paul had, in the previous verses, written affectionately about the Roman saints that he had a relationship with. And their commonality was Christ. Also, they were engaged in furthering the kingdom of Christ. And so he goes from that to a very strict warning about false teachers. And we studied that last week, and we're still there again this morning. Romans 16, verses 17 through 18. And it reads, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. As I mentioned last week, we are to expect false teachers within Christianity. And I used verses to prove this statement last week. Christ, Paul, Peter, and John all warned us that there would be false teachers that would attempt to lead people astray. Now, I want you to think about something in regards to false teachers. One doesn't wake up one morning and say, hey, I'll decide to be a false teacher. It's not planned that way. And in fact, false teachers for the most part, I would argue, don't believe that they're a false teacher. There are some that know that they're a false teacher, but there are others who are clinging on to a doctrine that stands in contradiction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, that no one starts off being a false teacher, I want to bring up a couple of verses. The first verse in regard to that statement is Matthew 13. Matthew 13, and it's a familiar verse. It's the the verses regarding the parable of the seed and the sower. But I want you to look at that that in regards to that statement. In verse 18, and these are the words of Christ. He said, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, When the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart, this is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet 
he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation and persecution arise because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who has received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Now right after that parable in Matthew, you see the parable of the wheat and the tares. And if you remember the parable of the wheat and tares, Christ tells us that there would be unbelievers within Christianity, within the church. With that in mind, going back to the parable of the seed and the sower, look at those that profess Christ but do not stay with Christ. In verse 19, the ones that hear but the seed is sown on the wayside, it said they don't understand the word of God. They don't understand it. They make an acknowledgement of God, but they don't understand it, the gospel of God. In verse 21, they can't endure tribulation. They fall by the wayside. In verse 22, they can never remove themselves from the world. Their love of the world is greater than a love for Christ. And I would argue, that this is how you get false teachers. It's those people that refuse to let go of the things of the world. They don't have a full understanding of the things of God, but yet they stay within the institutional church and they become a false teacher. And I would also say that for those people that are unbelievers that don't teach. I would say that those unbelievers though, unbelievers that are in the church that have never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, they encourage false teaching. And in fact, we're told by Paul to expect an increase in false teaching. And if you'll turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, Starting in verse 1, this is Paul giving instruction to young Timothy. And he says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come. When they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And I would argue that that is the environment that Christianity is in today because we have a rash. We have an epidemic of false teaching. And the reason why we have an epidemic of false teaching is because we have 
a lot of unbelievers sitting in pews all across America and unbelievers encourage false teaching. Unbelievers encourage false teaching. You look at all of the false teaching that's going on today across America and the different denominations, and you sit there and you think, how in the world do those people sit in the pews? They sit in the pews because they do not know Christ. If they knew Christ, the conviction of the Holy Spirit would cause them to exit the building. Unbelievers, unbelievers are okay with sitting in a church that preaches pro-LGTBQ. They are okay in preaching that women can fill the pulpit. They're okay in listening to a preacher preach on the softness of sin. Why? Because they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. I used to be shy about that. And unfortunately, over my 25 years of ministry, I have seen churches in a rapid state of decline, and we don't need to be silent anymore. We need to stand up for the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, because here Paul tells Timothy that they will raise up for themselves teachers. In other words, people aren't offensive, right? They want a preacher that is not offensive. I remember years ago, I had someone exiting the church early on in my ministry. And he said, I didn't much like your sermon. And I said, well, why didn't you like my sermon? He said, it didn't make me feel good. I said, well, I'm not here to make you feel good. I'm here to preach the word of God. That is what pastors and teachers are supposed to do. An honest presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Fables. Now, if you just came up to me and... You asked me cold, not in this context, but if you just called me up one day and say, Hey, Monty, what does a fable mean to you? It's a kid's story that isn't true. Right? That's what I'd tell you a fable was. It was a kid's story that isn't true. In other words, it's make-believe. And there are a lot of people that believe in a make-believe gospel. They have created a God who doesn't exist They've created a God who doesn't convict. They've created a God who is comfortable with a sinful lifestyle. It is a fable. Now, we shouldn't be surprised about this. Because quite frankly, it is in some ways the human condition. And we have biblical examples of this. Turn with me to Exodus 32. Exodus 32, as we see the story of the golden calf. And if you look at verse 1, it says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt... 
We do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So they all broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Now, in most of your versions, Lord is capital L. Make note of that. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. A lot of times when people look at this chapter, they want to say that this is the idol of their past life in Egypt. And yes, it is true that during that time, that a lot of cultures worshipped a young bull calf. But there's more to it than that. And it lies in verse 5 when Aaron said, Tomorrow is the feast to the Lord, capital L. What's going on here is something called syncretism. Well, what's syncretism? The definition of syncretism is the amalgamation or attempted amalgamation of different religion, cultures, or schools of thought. In other words, what the Hebrews are trying to do is, because they gave up on waiting for Moses and God, they make their own God. And they pull from their past in Egypt, but then they recognize that something miraculous had just happened is they cross the Red Sea, so they bring in God, and you have this mixture, or an attempted mixture, of their past in idolatry and their relationship with Jehovah God. Does syncretism work? Well, the simple answer to that, of course, is no. Syncretism doesn't work. But I want to take this moment here in Exodus 32, and with that in mind, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and Paul writes about the Hebrews. And this is extremely important in relationship to what's going on in this description of the Hebrews. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. He writes, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to become unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea, all ate the spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Let's stop right there for just a moment. Back to false teachers start out as, as unbelievers. A false unbeliever doesn't come off the street without professing are acknowledging Christ. They have some type of acknowledgement of Christ when they come in and, and then they start 
teaching a false gospel. Think of it in in this instance with the Hebrews. What Paul is saying is that they all experienced God. They all experienced God in some form or fashion. That first generation Hebrew. But look at verse 5 back in 1 Corinthians 10. But with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They had a knowledge of God. They had a knowledge of God, but they didn't have a saving knowledge of God. And that's why that first generation didn't make it into the promised land. Because they did not know God, even though, and when you sit there and you think about all of this, and you think, my goodness, look at all what they experienced. The crossing of the Red Sea. They experienced manna. They experienced the pillar of fire by night. They experienced the presence of God. All of the miracles before they left Egypt. They knew God, but they didn't have a saving knowledge of God. And because of that, God did not find them acceptable. Continue on in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Now these things became our, you, me, right? Our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happened to them. As examples. As examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. In other words, God is telling us through Paul's writing, don't be like the Hebrews. Don't be like the Hebrews. And we know through our biblical knowledge that the Hebrews suffered with idolatry throughout their time. In the Old Testament. They were idolaters. Remember Nadab and Abihu? Aaron's sons? Destroyed because they offered profane fire to the Lord? The point here is is that God is serious about His character. And He defends His character. And the church should stand for the true character of God, who God really is. If somebody went to the local newspaper and wrote an article or published an advertisement that said horrible things about who you were, untrue things about who you are, What is your remedy? Your remedy is to sue them for slander. They have made false statements about your character. 
And I would argue today that we have plenty of people in Christianity who are slandering the character of God. And as we see here in the Old Testament, and we see the Hebrews, and then we read the writings of Paul where it said, these people were given to you as an example for you to be serious about who God is and what he does. Now, you may say, well, preacher, that's Old Testament. In fact, liberals would say that, right? Liberal theologians would say, you know, that's Old Testament. You just need to get off of that. That's just Old Testament. God is a God of love. That's what they'd say. Well, if you want to take that argument and say, everything that I've said so far isn't relevant, what I would counter is, is for us to turn to 1 Corinthians 11. I was in 1 Corinthians 11, as I often am, as we observe the Lord's table. And it's regarding the Lord's table. Verse 27, if you don't think God is serious about his character, look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, but let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. In other words, Just like Nadab and Abihu were killed because of profane fire, Paul is telling us here that many that come to the table in an unworthy manner because they have profaned or slandered the character of God have been stricken with a physical malady or they're dead. Now you want to tell me that God's not serious about his character? He's very serious. In a false teacher, just like the Hebrews made the golden calf, a false teacher forms this image of a God that does not exist. And we have plenty of people in the American church culture today who are giving this image of God that he is okay with sin whatever form or fashion, that he's okay in contradicting every single thing that he told us in his Bible, and they will suffer the consequences. We have to be true to the word of God in his true gospel. So false teachers exist. False teachers come out of unbelievers. And what does Paul say that we're to do with them? Back to Romans 16. We're to avoid them. And the reason why he's so serious about us avoiding false teachers is that false teachers create false converts. And I would argue that what we've had over the last 50 or 60 years as the American church has been in decline and has preached a false gospel is that we have a lot of people who have a false assurance because they have given their life to a false God who does not exist. 
the church has to get back to where we're serious about the character and holiness of God because he is serious about his character. And so Paul says, avoid them. Turn with me to Ephesians 5, verse 8. It says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Expose them. We're to avoid, we are to expose. How does that happen? And I would argue that when biblical preaching is going on in the pulpit, that false teachers in a lot of instances will take care of themselves. If you have biblical preaching in the pulpit, the first crack... The first crack within a local church is when the preacher gets soft. And when the preacher gets soft, he gives an opening for false teachers. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. It says, Little children, it is the last hour, as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come, but which we know that it is the last hour And look at how he describes them in verse 19. They went out from us. They went out from us because they were not of us. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. In other words, as we observe the table, and I mentioned the unity of the table, the unity of belief. The unity of doctrine that enables a healthy church to survive. When you end up having false teachers and you have biblical preaching, most of the time, they don't like it here. Back to the preacher's job is to preach the truth of God and allow the truth of God in the working of the Spirit to take care of itself. Now... Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't. And when you think about, well, if a false teacher refuses to leave, what then should happen? That's the job of the elders. The job of the elders is to shepherd the church. And when you have a false teacher in church, it's the job of the elders to show those people the door. People may say, well, what if the elders won't do that? the elders won't do that, I'm going to tell you, you need to change churches. If the elders won't stand up for the true word of God, for the true character, for the true personality of God, you need to get a different church. Because chances are the church that you're in is not part of the true church. Because the true church has to be concerned about the character, the personality, the gospel of Christ. And is it true according to the scripture? When it's contrary, it's not the true church. You notice here in John, it says, they went out from us because they weren't of us. In other words, 
John, in his own way, is saying, good riddance. Now, if you argue and say, well, we're supposed to be restoring people. You restore people that are part of your flock. Think about that. In the words of John, they went out from us because they weren't of us. They weren't part of your flock. They weren't a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed in a God, but it wasn't the true God. You can't have restoration with people that aren't part of the flock. Church discipline, all day long. And church discipline is built upon restoring people. If we have someone that goes astray, that is straying from the salvation in which God has called us to, and they're living a life of sin, and they're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the church's job is to bring them back into a relationship with God, a relationship with God that they already had. But when you think about a false teacher, they went out from us because they weren't of us. There is nothing to restore. There has to be a relationship. Now, if that person comes back and says, my goodness, I I was asked to leave the church and three years later, I came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, they're part of the congregation. They're part of the flock. They're, They're a fellow believer. And then they are subjected to being restored. False teachers should be asked to leave because they will destroy a church. We're blessed. We're blessed in our church because we have a unity of belief and we need to praise God every single day for what we have here. And we need to be in prayer for there to be a revival. People say, well, there needs to be a revival in America. But I would argue that there's not going to be a revival in America until there's a revival in the churches. And what does that look like? See, my belief is is that we're living at the end of time. Because at the end of time, there will end up being a one-world religion. And there's a one-world religion because... False teachers deceive many people to believe in that one world religion. I think that's where we're at. But if I'm wrong, for there to be a true revival, it means that there is going to be a lot of pain within a lot of denominations. What you've experienced in the last five to ten years across all denominational lines is that We have been in this spiritual decline for years. And we finally got to the point, as I've always said, everybody has a line. Everybody's line within Christianity should be the Word of God. But denominations continue to decline, continue to take on false doctrine, and they finally got to a point to where they said, well, we've crossed a line that I can't cross. And there's a lot of denominations that go, we're just going to take one step back right over that line. That, that was a little too far. We're just going to take one step back. I would argue that's not revival. Revival is when they look at what they have done to their denomination in the last 50 years and say, we're going all the way back. We're going all the way back. 
based upon the word of God. If you don't have that, there can't be revival. It's not the teaching of men. It's what the word of God says. And may we always stand for the word of God. May we always portray an accurate picture of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and what he requires of us. We do not need leaders who will scratch ears. We need leaders who will stand for the word of God and his truth. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that this church may always cling to it, that we might rest in it, knowing that we'll all stand before you one day. We'll all give an account as believers one day. And I pray that we would be looking forward to your appearing. I pray that we wouldn't have any regrets. And I pray that we might stand boldly in the world in which we live and proclaim your truth. I pray if there's someone who's never accepted you as Lord and Savior, that they would accept you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as Pastor Bird continues this sermon series. If you wish to hear more, you may find him at millcreekchurch.org or go to sermonaudio.com slash millcreekchurch. Prayer requests may also be left at millcreekchurch.org. Our church services are as follows. Sunday morning Bible study is at 9 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study, and they are at 6.30 p.m. For more information and our mission statement, please visit our website, milkcreekchurch.org.